The Tennis Gambling Podcast and the Sports Gambling Podcast Network is brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. Underdog has added Pick'em Scorchers, where you can win 100 times your money. That's right, turn $5 into $500 in one game. Plus, every Sunday, they're giving away $100,000. Use promo code SGPN, Underdog Fantasy, for a 100% deposit bonus up to $500. We're also brought to you by Manscaped. Get $20 off and free shipping with the code SGP at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com and use code SGP. Finally, we're brought to you by Hall of Fame Bets, the sports betting research platform for parlays, player props, and game lines. Download the Hall of Fame Bets app or visit hofbets.com. Use code SGPN to get 50% off your first month and start making smarter bets today. And we're also giving away $3,000 in our NFL Second Chance Survivor Contest presented by Corey Pinkston and Barking Dog Properties. Free to enter, just go to sportsgamepockets.com slash survivor. And welcome, everybody, to the Tennis Gambling Podcast here on the Sports Gambling Podcast Network. It is currently Saturday morning, October 14th. Number host, so is Scott Reichel, once again, going solo for this pod. Should be a very short episode, but entertaining because it is time to get through one match, the Masters 1000 final in Shanghai between Rublev and Hercatch, which will be taking place at around 4.30 a.m., on Sunday Eastern time. So set your actual calendars and maybe your alarms if you want to actually watch the match, but it is going to be taking place pretty early on the East Coast. So keep that in mind, but should still be an entertaining final, and I'm looking forward to breaking that down. But before we get into that actual preview, do want to recap what happened in the semis, as well as discuss some news, mostly quotes involving Maria Sharapova. But either way, the point is to get through the actual recap for the semis. I think the plan for this is I'm going to go through the lock and dog then i'll recap the actual matches and some takeaways then i'll do the news then i'll get back into the match preview for the final so starting off with the lock and dog picks unfortunately shanghai has not been kind to us for the last couple days ended up losing the lock and dog picks starting off with the lock ended up picking corda on the money line and that really wasn't close as corda lost in straight sets six four six three the match itself was pretty much dictated by her uh, her catch's serve because Corda didn't have a single break point in the entire match. Uh, her, her catch served like an absolute madman, and Corda had no answers the entire match. So that was kind of the story. But either way, point is, you saw Corda struggle to actually return, and he had a couple of lackluster service games, which really swayed the entire match. I'm not sure if it would have mattered, because honestly, Corda wasn't even close to breaking her catch for the entirety of the match. So point is, you saw... Corda uh, really just played defensively the entire way through. It seemed like he lacked an overall game plan going in, and it felt like Hercatch did a good enough job of rallying, waiting for Corda to make dumb shot choices. And there were a couple of really bad uh, points constructed by Corda in one service game in the first set where he missed an overhead, which would have won the game. He also ended up uh, letting a shot go when he was at the net when he could have had a put away, but he let it go and it ended up clipping the back line in route to eventually quarter getting broken. And that kind of swayed the entire flow of the match because after that point, quarter was playing from behind and her catch wasn't giving him any chances with the actual serve. So quarter was just up against it and that was how it went. So overall did not go the way we thought it would. For the first semifinal, then the second semifinal, we ended up losing with the dog. We had the over two and a half sets in the Dimitrov and Rublev match. That match actually played out the way that we thought it would for about the first hour and change, because the first set was as close as you can imagine. It was an hour plus long set. 
I think an hour and 10 plus, and you ended up seeing Rublev win the tiebreaker 9-7. Dimitrov did have a set point in that tiebreaker. So it was really the thinnest of margins, which went in favor of Rublev. Then Dimitrov went up a break to start the second set. He was up 2-0, and he was up 2-1-40-15. So he was in pretty good form. And then after that, Dimitrov fell apart. He went from up 2-0 to down 5-2. He lost five straight games in the second set, then held at... 2-5, and then ended up losing the final service game of Rublev. So Dimitrov lost 7-6-6-3. Dimitrov, simply put, once again, fell apart in a big match. And you can argue that it was fatigue-based because the first set took a lot lot out of him. He's older than Rublev. And it was also a pretty weird scheduling spot because this was the first time all tournament Dimitrov had to play back-to-back days after playing on Friday. So maybe fatigue got the better of him, but I got to mention some overall trends involving... Dimitrov, because it's kind of disgusting. So I've called Dimitrov one of the biggest underachievers on tour in my lifetime, and he proved it once again on Saturday. But to go through some stats here, Dimitrov in his career has made seven Masters 1000 semifinals. He's one in seven. His only win, I believe, came back in 2017. So the point is he has been constantly falling apart in these bigger matches, and we saw it once again in the second set against Rublev. But I saw a post right underneath what I saw on Twitter. Now, I'm not sure how accurate this is, but I'm just going to read it out anyway. According to this anonymous source on Twitter, apparently Dimitrov is 2-14 and 14 in semifinals at the ATP level since 2018. 2 and 14. Now, I'm not, I don't have the 16 in front of me, so I can't proofread that or at least that, uh, fact check it. But the point is, it might be exaggeration. It might not be. But I do think Dimitrov is that abysmal in semis. And I do think there is some, I'd say, legitimacy to the claim because it has been a five-year sample size. Dimitrov has played a lot of matches, and he has been known to make deep Decent runs early and falling apart late. So maybe 2-14 is exaggerated. Maybe it's not. But the point is, he has been just horrific in semifinals over the past couple years. So I'm not shocked Dimitrov fell apart. But I did think that he would be able to take a set off Rublev. And he was in a decent spot. He had a set point in the first set. He was up a break in the first set as well. Ended up being up a break in the second. And he fell apart. So classic Dimitrov once again struggling in a big moment. Which is why I've never been a fan. Of him, I know off the court he seems to be a genuine good, a genuinely good human being. I get all that, but for the sake of a gambling tennis show, he has been a loser for most of his career. But anyway, uh, that's going to actually do it for the semifinal recap. I really don't have much more to add. Dimitrov just physically withered away, and Korda had a couple of dumb shot selections, uh, which kind of resulted in him getting broken a time or two, but I'm not sure if it mattered because, once again, her catch was serving at an insane level, which I'll get into in more depth in the actual final breakdown for that match. But, once again, two pretty, I don't say underwhelming semifinals, but two pretty straightforward semifinals, which is kind of unfortunate because if you actually look back at the quarterfinals, that has been the growing, I'd say, theme of this event. You ended up seeing the first two quarters in Shanghai go to three sets. The next two quarterfinals ended up going 
to the victor in pretty convincing fashion because they both ended in straight sets. And you saw the same thing in the Saturday semi. So the last four matches here have actually ended in straight sets. Now, I'm not saying, once again, there is anything to read into from regard to a trend or if that's actually going to mean anything for the final. But I do think it's once again a bit underwhelming when you have a lot of upsets early on and you have some chaos and then the favorite keeps winning in straight sets in the next couple of rounds. So hopefully we see a bit more of a marathon, more unpredictability in the final on Sunday, but that remains to be seen. Anyway, I'm going to transition now into the news piece. We haven't actually had a news piece for a couple of episodes. It's going to involve Maria Sharapova's comments. And she made a couple of comments, which I think are somewhat correlated, even though I don't know if it was intended that way. So I'm going to read off the first quote, which does involve the pay gap between the men's tour and the women's tour. And she thinks the disparity is insane and needs to be addressed. So this was her quote. This is verbatim. Quote, just this week, there is a men's tournament actually still happening in Shanghai with a winner's prize check of $1.2 million. In the same week, there's a women's tournament in China with a winner's check at $120,000. I don't know if anyone's familiar with those numbers, but you go to a Grand Slam and we are celebrating equal prize money. Great. Those are the biggest events with the biggest attention, media, and the buzz. But then the rest of the tour, which is the eight or nine other months, is there the disparity is insane, and that needs to be addressed. So I'm going to start off with the obvious elephant in the room. Sharapova's conveniently ignoring the actual level of the events itself because Shanghai is a Masters 1000 event, uh, Zhangzhou is a 500, and Hong Kong is a 250. So she's conveniently ignoring the fact that there is a massive uh, disparity in pay because this is a Masters 1000 event, one of the biggest events of the year, it is the biggest event of the year, not including Grand Slams, compared to a 500 and a 250. So obviously, the men should be getting paid more in this particular case. Want to start off there. Then that's going to segue us into our second quote, which involved the lack of proper marketing for the women's tour. And these are her quotes. You had Coco Goff winning her first major at the U.S. Open in New York City. The crowd, the bridging culture, sport, fashion, all in that moment three weeks later. How many people know she's playing a tournament in Beijing? She got to the semis and lost, but I'm sure 99% of the audience at the U.S. Open had no idea where she was playing next. Right away, that's a problem off the bat. So a couple of points that I want to make here. First of all, I think this is correlated to the lack of equal pay for women uh, throughout the other months besides the Grand Slams of the actual tour. Am I supposed to feel bad for the women not getting paid equally when, A, Maria just described all of her fans as being casuals because they don't actually follow tennis besides the Grand Slams. B, you're looking at, once again, the point here of nobody really knows when these women's tournaments are happening so why should they get paid the same? It feels like it's a spot where I'm bridging the two comments. If she's going to complain that nobody knew Goff was playing in China three weeks later, I feel like that kind of sums up why the men are also getting paid more, because the men have a more consistent fan base. You can argue that women do have a fan base and they would be willing to follow if they knew more about the actual schedule. You can. I don't really know how marketing is going to change that. In Beijing... The events are taking place at about 3 in the morning. The U.S. Open crowd is, in my time zone, because I live in New York, nobody's waking up at 3 a.m. to watch women's tennis. It's just not going to happen. Like You can make an argument that the diehard fans, maybe in Europe, 
or people that gamble want to wake up. Shout out to the SGPN tennis discord who are gambling at women's tennis at four in the morning. But for the most part, the time zone's a big reason for that, because in the U.S. Open final, you're having it in the middle of the afternoon where people in a bunch of time zones can watch it. I know it's a little bit annoying for people in Europe. It's a bit later there. And in Australia, et cetera, it's a completely lost cause because of the massive time difference. And in Asia, the same thing. But you have to at least acknowledge the time zone difference because, once again, since I'm gambling on tennis, since I have shows, I'm paying attention to the men's matches at four in the morning in Shanghai. I'm assuming most of the crowd that watched Djokovic play in the U.S. Open final was probably not watching Shanghai. And I'm sure a lot of them were not paying attention to it. So I do think there's a little bit of... Once again, convenient detail ignoring by Sharapova here. Now, can the marketing be better on the women's side? Sure. But to be honest, I don't even know if the marketing on the men's side is that good. I'm trying to think of one commercial I've seen for a non-Grand Slam tournament on the men's side. I can't think of one. I've not seen a tournament for like Cincinnati or Shanghai or any of these other Masters 1000 events, Monte Carlo, where I've seen a legitimate ad on TV. I have not seen that. You have to go out of your way to look at the schedule and keep tr- keep tabs on what exactly is happening in the tennis world. And you can make an argument that marketing has been kind of bad on both sides. I don't think the marketing is that good for the men's tour either. Now, you can make a counterpoint that the men's tournament has more marketable figures because Djokovic is a household name in tennis. Alcaraz has become the future face of the of the sport already, and he's not even old enough to drink yet in, in America. He's not even 21 yet. You're looking at Nadal, who is also a face of the entire tennis tour for a couple decades. You're looking at Federer doing the same thing. They have just had more marketable figures, and Serena and Venus had a bunch of overall sponsors, and they were the face of women's tennis. Venus is still around, but she's a corpse at this point. She should have retired already. And you could argue that Swiatek is Polish, and a lot of people don't... I mean, I know that she had a kind of a fun, bubbly personality, but I feel like most people don't actually know anything about her, besides the running joke that she likes Terry Misu. But I don't think anybody really follows Iga. I don't know if it's because of... I don't want to say xenophobia, but I don't think a lot of people really follow her because I don't think many people care to watch her matches. And I think when you're looking at a big reason for the lack of marketing on the women's side. Maybe they just don't have as many marketable characters at the top of the standings because you're looking at Sabalenka. I'm not sure if she's marketable or not. People still kind of hold it against her that she's rush that she's a Belarusian. And that's why they don't show her flag whenever she plays. So I don't know if that ended up turning off some fans, even though that had nothing to do with her. But then again, for the Russians on the men's side, you still have Medvedev and Rublev and they still get decent, I don't think they get decent marketing. I just think people like them. But I feel like Sharapova is trying to make a case saying, you know, the tours themselves need to do a better job of marketing. I don't know if the men's tour does marketing or if people just actually pay more attention to men's tennis so they know more men's tennis and the t- more men's tennis players in the top 10 than the women's players. So I disagree with Sharapova's comments. I do think the marketing could be better, but that's for both tours. I don't think it's just, I don't think that the ATP and the WTA are colluding to make the women's marketing significantly less impressive than the men's marketing. It seems like she's whining, in my opinion. Now, once again, my main takeaway from her quotes, and I think she is right, I think that 99% of the audience at the US Open had no idea that 
Goff was playing in Be- in uh, Beijing. I don't think that's because the tours are mistreating the women's players. I think it's because most women's tennis players, fans, most women's uh, tennis fans are casuals and they only pay attention to the Grand Slams and they really don't care about the other events throughout the course of the year. So Sharapova, I think, is on to something. But I think she's blaming the wrong source. I think she should be blaming the actual fans for not caring about tennis besides the U.S. Open and the other three Grand Slam events. Even the other three Grand Slams, I'm not sure how many American tennis fans are watching the Australian Open to watch women's tennis. I don't know how many there are. The French Open, I don't know how many of these fans are watching Swiatek in the final. I think some of it is based on time zone, and I think some of it is based on just a lack of overall commitment to following the women's tour which is the individual fan's fault. I don't think that's the tour's fault that you have a massive following for the U.S. Open final where a lot of people don't seem to follow it afterwards. So I am, once again, not going to agree with Sharapova's overall uh, complaint about the lack of proper marketing solely for the women as well as the pay gap. She mentioned tournaments of different standing, a Masters 1000 event compared to a 500 and a 250. So obviously you're going to see the 1000 members get paid more. And once again, mentioning the lack of proper uh, fandom with women's tennis, I feel like that's because women's tennis fans are kind of cherry pickers who follow the big events and don't care about the other ones. So that's my thoughts on that. I'm kind of dismissing Sharapova's claims, but I wanted to mention it. And I did think it was important to note that she did leave out some key piece of information, which definitely needed to be included in this rant. So either way, that's my overall thoughts for Sharapova's claims. I disagree, but I can at least acknowledge what she was trying to say. Now, moving on to the actual final match of Shanghai, you have a matchup between Rublev and Hercatch. Rublev is a pretty decent favorite at minus 150, where Hercatch is plus 130. As for the game spread, you have Rublev at minus 1.5, minus 115, and Hercatch plus 1.5 is minus 105. Over-under in games, the over is at 23.5, minus 110 on both sides, and the 22.5 over is minus 150 if you want to take an alt line. As for the set spread... Rublev to win in straight sets is plus 170. Hercatch to win uh, in straight sets is plus 300. And the match to go to three sets is plus 115. So to start off with the head-to-head, it's been pretty even, historically speaking, as each player has won two meetings. Now, I have to at least point out that Rublev has done well recently, as they have not faced off in 2023, but they did face off in 2022, and Rublev did win both meetings, one in Indian Wells, in straight sets, seven six six four, and one in Dubai in three sets, coming back from a set down. So Rublev has won the last two meetings on hard court. Now, uh, Hercatch won the previous two meetings in 2021 in Miami, uh, which Hercatch won in straight sets, and he also won on clay in Rome back in 2020. Clay, it doesn't really matter in this case, so I'm going to dismiss it. But the point is, Rublev has been better uh, recently in the head-to-head, and I think that is worth mentioning. But I do want to bring up the interesting scheduling spot, because her catch has not had to play on back-to-back days yet in this event, which is kind of the weird breakdown of the quarters, because you figured they would have all four quarters on the same day. They didn't. So Rublev has to play now for his third straight day, and her catch has to play for a second straight day for the first time all tournament. So I think the rest spot is pretty 
interesting or the fatigue spots interesting? Because you make an argument that both guys are dealing with situations they are not accustomed to. Rublev playing three straight days and Hercatch playing two straight days. So we'll see how both players handle it, but I wanted to at least bring that up. Now, for the overall path of both players, Rublev has not dropped a set. So Rublev has been completely dominant so far in this event, ended up beating Hallis, beat Manorino, beat Paul, beat Umber, and beat Dimitrov. Pretty solid competition from top to bottom, and he has not dropped a set. Now, Hercatch ended up beating uh, the likes of Korda in the semis, beat Morozin, a Cinderella story in the quarters, beat Jang, another Cinderella in the 16, beat Sue and beat Kokonakis. Did drop a set to Zhang and to Morozin. So Hercatch has definitely been more vulnerable so far in this event, and he has been uh, willing to drop sets, unlike Rublev. But I want to at least go back to my takeaways for the semis, because Rublev was looking very sharp, at least compared to Dimitrov's level in the first set. Both guys were playing very well, and you ended up seeing Rublev just outlast him in the first set, and then eventually the wheels fell off for Dimitrov. But I want to read off Hercatch's serving numbers against Korda, which goes back to what I said before about Korda really not having a chance based on how good Hercatch served. To go through Hercatch's numbers, first of all, he landed... 75% of the first serve. And we know he's a very good first server. I've called him Kevin Anderson Jr. on the show a couple of times. So he's a very good server. 75%. He landed. He won 85% of the first serve points. So he was completely just dominant on the first serve. The fascinating part here, though, is the second serve points. Because Hercat struggled when it came to defending a second serve. He only won 38% of his second serve points. And that's actually a trend I've seen in this event as well, because in the previous match against Morozin, he only won 45% of his second serve points. So it does seem like if you see a dip in Hercatch's first serve percentage, you might see some breaks, because I do think that Rublev can attack that second serve of Hercatch, which has been kind of an Achilles heel. Now, it hasn't come back to bite him fully in this event, but I have to at least point it out that his second serve points one has not been overly impressive for a guy making the final in a Masters 1000. And as for Rublev, he has been better at defending the second serve. Now, Rublev won 63% of the second serve points against Umber. He won 57% of the second serve points against Paul. He won 53% of the second serve points against Manorino. And he ended up winning 53% of the second serve points against Hallis. So if you want to go based on some potential regression assuming Hercatch doesn't serve 75% again for serve, then Rublev has an advantage because I do think that Rublev is the better rallier and I do think that he'll be able to push Hercatch around the court uh, with more effectiveness than Korda. But I do have to point out that if Hercatch serves as well as he did in that semi, he's probably going to win. I don't know how he could beat him if he serves that well because he was hitting every spot. He was hitting first serve bombs on every key point and Korda was up against it. So... Once again, I know Cord has been a thorn on my side for the past year, but I kind of I don't want to give him a full pass, but I'm not sure how many guys would have been able to actually break her catch in that match yesterday because his serving was lethal. And I do think once again some regression is in store. To go through the first serve percentage of for her catch in this event, it was 75% against Corda. It was uh 68% against Morozin. It was 70% against Zhang. It was 74% against Sue, and it was 70% against Kokonakis. So assuming he dips back down to around 70% or 68%, 
that's a decent amount of added second serve opportunities for Rublev to capitalize on. And I do think that Rublev would be willing to capitalize on those because he has been pretty efficient breaking serve in this overall event. But for the sake of this match, I think I have to link to Rublev. He is 2-0 in the recent head-to-head on hard court, and I do think he's the better returner. I think that Rublev has done a better job with the second serve, and I do think that you're looking at her catch once again, potentially regressing after having one of the best serving performances he's had in a while. I just think that Rublev's going to find a way. The issue Rublev had in years past was finishing some big tournaments, and he had been winless in Masters 1000 finals until he won Monte Carlo. And the fact that he finally won that gives me added belief that he has added confidence getting past the finish line because he was able to win a Masters 1000 event earlier this year. But for me, I am going to go with Rublev, and I am going to link to the over. I think you might see a longer match, but I do think that you're going to see Rublev eventually break through in route to a title. But that's going to wrap it up for the actual match preview. Now it's time for the Lock and Dog picks. But for continuing that, I can have a quick word from our sponsor. We're brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. Underdog Fantasy has a way to play alongside your favorite football team all season long. Underdog has just introduced Scorchers. Go five for five in Pick'em Scorchers and enjoy a spicy 100x payout. And for a limited time, Underdog is extending the first deposit bonus up to $500. $100,000 Sundays continue. Underdog Fantasy, 10 lucky players will win $10,000 each. So watch along, make your picks, and maybe make a little money over Underdog's mobile app or website, underdogfantasy.com. And remember, when you sign up, use the promo code SGPN. Underdog will double your first deposit up to five hundred dollars. So fantasy promo code SGPN. We're brought to you by Manscaped, who have taken a step up from Balloween to bring your face the cleanest shave it's ever seen. So this season, no need to toil and trouble. Manscaped's all-new Handyman is the best way to get rid of that stubble. Featuring a compact design and next-gen skin-safe technology, the Handyman was designed to give you a smooth finish without the mess of a traditional shave. Get the sweetest treat this Halloween by going to manscaped.com and use code SGP for 20% off plus free shipping. And maybe spooky season, but you don't want to scare people with a scraggly beard. Give them something to look at with Manscaped's Handyman. Are you tired of a bad razor making your neck look like a scary movie? With the Handyman Skin Safe technology to help reduce nicks and cuts, you can finally feel confident when going for that close shave. And on top of that, they also have the Beard Hedger, which is a high-tech piece of art in a travel size package with a long-lasting battery, universal charging, and a strong motor. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SGP at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code SGP. For a look as sweet as candy, get yourself the handyman from Manscaped. Already knocked out of your NFL Survivor pool? Don't worry about it, because we got you covered with the SGPN Second Chance Survivor Contest. Presented by Corey Pinkston and Barking Dog Properties, $3,000 up for grabs. Winner takes all. Starts NFL Week 7. To sign up now at sportscampodcast.com slash survivor. Sportscampodcast.com slash survivor. We're also brought to you by Hall of Fame Bets. Win bigger by betting smarter this NFL season with Hall of Fame Bets, the sports betting analytics platform for parlays, player props, and game lines. Research every NFL, NBA, MLB, and soccer bet with historical stats and data. Enter any parlay idea into Hall of Fame Bets' revolutionary parlay optimizer tool to get hit rates broken down by leg, as well as an expected probability for the entire parlay. Sort all players by hit rate for any bet to learn which players are hot and which picks have value. Stop betting in the dark and join over 30,000 members researching with Hall of Fame Bets to craft more intelligent 
data-driven parlays. Download the Hall of Fame Bets app or visit hofbets.com and use code SGPN to get 50% off your first month today. Start researching, start winning with Hall of Fame Bets. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tennis Gambling Podcast. Just finished previewing the men's final in Shanghai, taking place on Sunday morning between Hercatch and Rublev. Now it's time for the lock and dog pick. Starting off with the lock, I'm going to go to the total in this one. Give me the over 22 and a half games at minus 150. Simply put, I do think both guys are good at serving, and I do think that Hercatch's first serve has been an absolute weapon this entire event. Now, I'm not saying he's going to serve as well as he did against Korda, but I do think that his first serve is so good that it should be able to get him out of trouble, and I think he should be able to have a decent amount of holds in this match, not to mention the possibility of getting three sets in this particular match. But if you want to look at the head-to-head, Three of the four meetings did go over this number. The last two meetings on hardcore in 2022 did go over this number as well. I like the over 22 and a half games. Give me a competitive match, which should end up going over this posted total. And for the dog, I really didn't like much because the over two and a half sets is plus 115. That's too low for me. So I'm not going to take it. I don't think there's any value on that number. Not to mention the fact that the last, uh, uh, last, what was it? Uh, Four matches or six matches? Point is, the last couple of rounds have seen a lot of straight sets, and I do think that if you want to back that trend and you want to go for a decent plus-money play, I'm going to go with Rublev to win in straight sets at plus 170. The second serve percentage is a bit of a problem for her catch, and I do think that Rublev, if he can end up seeing a decent amount of second serves, should be able to get maybe a break at some point, but I do trust him because I think he's the better player. And I do think that Rublev had an issue, getting across the finish line of Masters 1000 events, but that did change when he won earlier this year in Monte Carlo. I think he got the monkey off his back. I think he's got some confidence in this final, and he also has not dropped a set. So if you want to back Rublev, who has won in straight sets every single match here, to do it again at plus 170, I do like the value. But Hercat's dropping sets to Morozin and to Zhang tells me that even though he's been playing well here, he is a bit more vulnerable than Rublev is. I like the value, and I do think, once again, process of elimination, I really didn't like many other dogs here, so I am going to go with the pretty solid price, taking a bit of a flyer. So once again, the lock and dog picks for the show. The lock's going to be on the over 22.5 games at minus 150, and the dog's going to be Rublev to win in straight sets at plus 170. That's going to wrap it up for this Shanghai tournament. We'll back once again to go through some other events taking place over the next week. Should be a pretty jam-packed schedule because we have tournaments in Tokyo, in Stockholm, and in Antwerp. So get ready, three ATP events, two separate 250s, and a 500 in Tokyo. And we're going to break down all three of them in the Outrights episode. So keep an eye out for that episode. But until then, find me on Twitter at Rice Show Radio. Find me on the NBA show, the NFL show, the WNBA show, and a couple other podcasts with the network at the point. Until next time, good luck to all of you and all of your bets. Bye, everyone.